Father, you have given us a mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would come and you would turn that vision into the reality of Bethlehem College and Seminary. Help me now to have the right spirit about me and grant that these words that you have given me would be understandable and that they would honor Christ and that they would launch us into a trajectory that would be faithful for years to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for my talk is The Earth is the Lord's, The Supremacy of Christ in Christian Learning, Biblical Foundations for Bethlehem College and Seminary. First, a few comments about the spirit with which this vision of Bethlehem College and Seminary proceeds and from which it flows. There is no sense of triumphalism. There is no sense of having the last word in education. There's no sense of having easy answers to challenges of our own time. There's no sense that we own the ideal philosophy of college and seminary training. Instead, as Tim said, there's a trembling sense that pride and poverty and many other things make this a very dangerous undertaking. And I want to say a word about each of those two, pride and poverty. One of the most fertile fields of pride is academic higher education. I spent 16 years of my life in it, and I have tasted it deeply. I read this morning in Ezekiel 16, as some of you did, that God took Israel in her misery and he made her beautiful. Did he not? And then that dreadful verse 15 came. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown. And I thought to myself, God has taken Bethlehem and blessed her. God has blessed the Bethlehem Institute. God has blessed desiring God. God has blessed me. And the greatest danger right now is that we would boast in our blessed condition. That we would be proud of our renown. Pride looks, lurks at every corner of this pathway that we are embarking on. And we tremble and we ask, Lord, is that our motive? To flaunt power, to get praise, to make a name for ourselves? If so, O oh God, may we fail and fail quickly, lest we hurt anyone else. Pride, however, takes other forms like cowardice. 
The fear of being criticized is another form of pride. And criticism, there will be a plenty. Because this school will affirm biblical truths that are unpopular even among many evangelical Christians, as beautiful as we think those truths are. And I'll mention ten of them later. That's the risk we believe we are called to take. And may the Lord do what it takes to keep us humble, to make us servants and not lords as we move forward with Bethlehem College and Seminary. Personally, I fear pride more than I fear death. And pray that the Lord would take me out before I become unusable through pride. Poverty. This is another reality that makes college and seminary a dangerous undertaking. Here we are reading our books, listening to our lectures, writing our papers, having our discussions, all the while aware that in our urban centers, they are broken. Generations languish, unable to escape the tangles of addiction and dysfunction and poverty and crime. And beyond these shores, millions and millions of people who live with no clean water, insufficient food, no medical care, and could only dream about such an education in another world. And that vast discrepancy gives us a sense of uneasiness in the affluent halls of learning. And they are all affluent in America. But then we ask, is the answer to the miseries of the world a generation of young people or multiple generations of young people who don't know how to observe accurately or think carefully or know history or understand culture or comprehend the Bible or plan strategically? I don't think so. So again, we take the risk and pray that Bethlehem College and Seminary would not be part of the problem of poverty, but part of the solution. Students developing habits of mind and heart that move toward need creatively, not toward comfort fearfully. So, those are my two expressions of trembling concern at the outset. And I turn now to the biblical foundations of this institution. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 and 26 read like this. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now that word from the Apostle Paul implies Jesus Christ owns the world and everything in it. It also implies that we who are his loyal subjects may make use of it, all of it, 
freely for his glory. That's what education is about. How to make use of the world freely for the glory of the one who owns it. Abraham Kuyper, who founded the Free University of Amsterdam in 1880, said, as you know, in one of his most famous sentences, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest And there is not a square inch on the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! That was the foundation of the Free University of Amsterdam. It is true. It is absolutely biblical and foundational to Bethlehem College and Seminary. However, it is not the ultimate defining truth of this school. Christ not only made and owns the world, he not only holds everything together by the word of his power, but he created it and he sustains it for his glory in order that it might and we might by using it display His wonder, magnificence, greatness, attributes. To display the beauty of Christ, his worth, his greatness, so that the one, we, people who are created in his image might know him, treasure him above all things, and in treasuring him above all things, manifest his supreme value in the universe That's the ultimate defining truth of Bethlehem College and Seminary. That all the world exists and we exist that we might, through it, know his glory, love his glory, spread his glory in such a way that we display his glory in all the world. And the key text is Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and I'll read it to you. Colossians 1:15 Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and here's the key phrase and for him And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we learn that Christ has made all things, holds all things together, and all things exist for himself. All things were made through him and for him. And when it says for him, It does not mean that there were deficiencies in Jesus Christ before creation, which he had to create something in order to supply his own deficiencies. Rather, it means that the complete self-sufficiency of Jesus Christ before there was anything overflowed in the creation of the world such that it would display his total self-sufficiency in every regard. That's the meaning of for him. So it isn't just that he owns everything. 
It isn't just that he holds everything together. It's that he owns it, made it, holds it together in order that we, by knowing him in it, enjoying him in it, displaying him in it, might make him known in the world, might be reflectors of the fullness of the majesty of Jesus Christ who made and owns and holds together the world. That's the deepest foundation stone of Bethlehem College and Seminary. All things not only belong to Christ, but all things display Christ. Whatever discipline. Human beings exist to magnify his worth in the world. Our worth consists in our capacity to consciously make much of his worth. The goal of Bethlehem College and Seminary cannot be expressed with man as the end point. We are not the main point or the end point. God and Christ are the main point and the end point and the goal of all our undertakings. All things are from him and through him and to him. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory everywhere you turn in the Bible. The whole history of redemption from beginning to end. God's design is the same. That his glory, supremely the glory of his grace in the person and work of Christ, be seen and savored and spread. God is manifestly exuberant about making himself and his son supreme in the thoughts and affections of his people and making himself known as Lord among the nations, even those who do not know his saving grace. That's the ultimate foundation of why Christ is supreme in Christian learning and of Bethlehem College and Seminary. We are simply joining God himself in his exuberant commitment to magnify his greatness and the glory of his son. Now, what then do you study? The ultimate foundation is... The display of Christ from all that he has made as we see it, savor it, spread the glory of it. So what then is the focus of our education? Where do we see his glory? What's the focus of a school's attention? What do we study The answer is this. God has two books. The word and the world. The Bible on the one hand and the whole organic complex of nature and history and human culture on the other hand. The Bible is inspired and authoritative. The world is not. But this doesn't mean 
that all that we study is the Bible. The Bible gives decisive, authoritative meaning to all things. But the Bible itself sends us to the world to learn. Consider the lilies. Consider the birds. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. In fact, think about it for a moment. When Jesus talks and the apostles talk and the prophets talk and use human language, what do they use? They use analogies and figures and metaphors and similes and illustrations and parables. And in all of them, they're assuming that we have looked at the world and understand what they're saying. We have looked at vineyards and wine and weddings and lions, and bears, and horses, and dogs, and pigs, and grasshoppers, and constellations, and businesses, and wages, and banks, and fountains, and springs, and rivers, and fig trees, and olive trees, and mulberry trees, and thorns, and wind, and thunderstorms, and bread, and baking, and armies, swords, shields, sheep, shepherds, cattle, camels, fire, green wood, dry wood, hay, stubble, jewels, Gold, silver, law courts, judges, advocates, and on and on and on. The Bible assumes and demands that we go to the world and understand the world. We will study the general book of God called nature and history and culture. And we will study the special book of God called the Bible And the reason we will study both is that God has revealed his glory in both and means for us to see it and know him in both. The two books of God are not on the same level. The Bible has supreme authority because God gave the Bible as the key to unlock the meaning of all things. Without the truth of the Bible, the most brilliant scholars may learn amazing things about nature. And we may read their books and learn from them. But they miss the main point without special revelation. And everything exists to glorify God. They don't see it. They don't see that they're blinded by sin. They don't see that they need a savior. They don't see that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And they don't see that the whole universe gets its ultimate meaning from relationship to Jesus Christ. And therefore, all of their knowledge is skewed. So the entire curriculum of Bethlehem College and Seminary is permeated. May it ever be so by the study of the Bible. The Bible gives the key that unlocks the meaning of absolutely everything else. 
So, what do you do with God's books? If that's the focus of education, what do you do with them? If Bethlehem College and Seminary is going to focus on these two books, the word that God inspired, the world that God made, because this is where God is revealed in his glory, what should we do with them? Our aim is to build into students habits of mind and heart that will never leave them unfit for a lifetime of ongoing growth. We're not interested in imparting mere facts that will be forgotten, imparting degrees that you can tack on the end of your name, imparting some vocational or professional skill that's going to be obsolete in five years. That's not the point of this institution. The point of this institution is the kind of mind-shaping and heart-shaping, developing habits of mind and habits of heart that fit us to go on learning what needs to be learned for the rest of our lives so that we might live in a Christ-exalting, people-loving way till we're dead. The habits of mind that I have in mind, the habits of mind and heart, Apply to all objects, whether you are studying the Bible or whether you are studying the U.S. Constitution or whether you are trying to figure out the meaning of a few scratches on the side of your parked car. Education is the same. Let me read you the summary paragraph and I'll unpack it for a little bit. We aim to enable and motivate the student to observe his subject matter accurately and thoroughly, to understand clearly what he has observed, to evaluate fairly what he has understood by deciding what is true and valuable, to feel intensely according to the value of what he has evaluated and its truth, to apply wisely and helpfully in life what he has understood and feels, and to express in speech and writing and deeds what he has seen and understood and felt and applied in such a way that its accuracy, clarity, truth, value, helpfulness can be known and enjoyed by others to the glory of God. That's what we try to do. Let me pick it apart for a moment. Observation. We aim to enable and motivate the student to observe his subject matter accurately and thoroughly. We must see what is there. Whether you're looking at a page in the Bible or through a microscope, we must see what is there and see it really well, really accurately, really thoroughly. Else, everything else in this list goes haywire. We must keep looking until they see, the students see things they didn't see at first. In the Word and in the world. We must learn to read slowly, for goodness sakes. 
I'm on a crusade to slow people down. Because we have to observe rigorously and minutely and comprehensively. The observing must be accurate and thorough. Otherwise, our understanding, our evaluation, our flawed reading many books quickly begets bad habits of mind. Most teachers don't understand this, so it seems to me from my history in school. They think they're a better teacher if they can get students to read ten books instead of one book. I assign one book. Did they have to read it? Explain to me the in order that at the eight-tenths of the way down on page 53. Explain that to me from your reading last night. Well, if you breeze through that thing, you would never have a clue what the teacher's even asking. But right there, the argument hangs on it, and it's either true or false because of that sentence. Oh, what bad habits of mind students are forming in schools that just rush them through so many books and never demand that they slow down and think and think and think. Which brings me to number two, understanding. We aim to enable and motivate the student to understand clearly what he has observed thoroughly and accurately. Understanding involves the severe discipline of thinking. And most people don't ever do it. It's such hard work that we just turn on the television. The mind must wrestle with the traits and features, whether it's a page or whether it's a culture. Wrestle with those features. The aim when reading the Bible is that we discern what the author intended us to understand. This understanding comes through language conventions that have to be studied and learned. We observe them, we think about them, until we can say, I understand what he meant. We want his meaning, not mine. Who cares about my meaning? His is the only one that matters. We want his. We aim to think an author's thoughts after him. It's the hardest work in the world. Otherwise, education simply becomes a reflection of my own ignorance. Number three, evaluating. Once we have observed carefully and thoroughly, and once we have thought and thought and thought and come to an understanding so that we could say back to an author what he meant so that he would be satisfied with what we just said, now we can evaluate. And evaluate fairly. And in evaluating, make the massive decision, is this true? Is this valuable? Or worthless. And of course you can hear a world view, can't you? We believe there is such a thing as truth. And we believe that with the compass of the scriptures and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can know it. Even if through a glass darkly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, nevertheless, Truly, truly enough to die for it rightly. Number four, feeling. We aim to enable and motivate students to feel properly 
in response to what they have observed and understood and evaluated. Feeling is essential to glorifying God properly because God is more glorified when you rejoice in what you see of him than when you only understand what you see of him. If you only in some kind of neutral academic way say, I understand this sentence, and you do get it accurately, and you feel nothing, God is not honored by your heart. The emotional life of our students really matters. Which means, as you can see, we are desperate. And we will pray. And we will depend upon the Holy Spirit. This is not mere natural transmission of data. This is miracle happening. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from all the idolatries where you have strong feelings for the wrong thing. That's the miracle we want. In our lives and in our students' lives. And if we don't get it, we feel like we've not accomplished our goal. We can't control it. We can't make it happen. But, oh, we can pray toward it. We can be a praying faculty. We can be on our faces desperate that the truth will awaken God-honoring emotions. Because our students will come to us so broken. They're just like you. They will be so lamed. By their parents, by their genetic makeup, by the devil, by the culture. They will be so lamed. And the school has to have a hospital dimension to it when it comes to healing emotions. May God give us grace. Five, applying. We aim to enable and motivate students to apply wisely and helpfully to their lives and others' lives what they have observed, understood, evaluated, and now felt intensely. Wisdom is not a summary of factual knowledge. Wisdom is a gift of God that you get through life and study and everything you experience. And wisdom is the ability to take all that you've now seen and understood and evaluated and felt and then do something helpful with it. So if you were studying Ephesians and you finally felt that you had gotten a breakthrough to the meaning of redeem the time, buy back the time. And you think, I've studied for an hour on this. I've read enough commentaries. I've looked at it in the context. I think I've got it. No one. <laughs> no one. Nothing? No. You ask, oh God, what can I do to, to redeem the time? And it might be something as wise as start going to bed earlier. So that when you get up, you're not so tired, you fall asleep while you're reading your Bible. Or it might be, I feel I'm out of touch with the poverty that you talked about. I'm going to go get an internship down at Community community Emergency Services and, and give an afternoon a week there working with real live people on the street so that I can get some sense of what the world is like. That might be what redeem the time means for you. Finally, in the sequence six, expressing. 
education, the well-educated person doesn't just observe accurately, doesn't just understand truly, doesn't just evaluate fairly, doesn't just feel deeply, doesn't just apply wisely. The truly educated person can speak and write and act so that everything he's being shown of the glory of God can be compellingly expressed. Barack Obama became president once upon a time because he is incredibly well-educated at the level of expression and gifted. That's what we want. How sad when the representatives of truth bumble. How sad. We don't want bumblers to represent the truth. We want articulate people who can write and speak and say what needs to be said so that people are drawn to the truth and not embarrassed by its expression. Which brings us back now to our original reason for being. We were created, the world was created to display the glory of God. A well-educated person. And by the way, a little princess, this has nothing necessarily to do, to, to do with degrees or the institution you go to. Or any formality. Those of you who never went to college and will never go to college can be really well educated. Because nothing I have said so far or will say means that education attaches to courses. Education attaches to degrees. It doesn't. You can go to all the degrees and courses you want and be really bad, badly educated. Close that parenthesis. A well-educated person sees the glory of God in the word that God inspired and the world that God made. He understands it. He evaluates it as true and precious. He feels it deeply. He applies it to his life and he expresses it with effectiveness in the world and thus displays the glory of God. We don't assume in Bethlehem College and Seminary that the process of deciding what is true and valuable started with us or starts over with every generation of students. Therefore, we are a confessional institution. The Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith defines what we believe and teach in Bethlehem College and Seminary, or it gives the trajectory if it doesn't address an issue that needs to be addressed. It's our compass after the scriptures of how to think about reality. We do not aim to force students into this mold. That would not be education. It would be indoctrination. And it would not be an honor to Christ. We aim to come alongside a student 
in the process of observation, understanding, evaluation, feeling, application, and expression, and show them why we land where we do in each of those processes. The faculty will advocate for truth. We won't play the game of neutrality that only belittles truth to give the students the impression that we haven't made up our minds or we don't care deeply about where they come out is not helpful in the long run for students. We will advocate and we will seek to persuade, but we will not coerce. We will not deceive. We will not hide difficult problems that make our view a problem. In this way, we believe truth will be honored and the integrity of careful thinking will be encouraged. We believe that this way of doing education with a view to seeing and savoring and spreading the glory of Christ while making his word the supreme rule in all of our thinking about the world with rigorous habits of mind and habits of heart that we've described, we believe that this way of educating leads to humble, courageous conviction in a fallen world where Christ urges us to live peaceably with all men as much as it lies within us and not to shrink back from telling the truth that is often controversial. Therefore, I pray that Bethlehem College and Seminary will be marked by unashamed courage and openness in the stands that we take We feel the force of Martin Luther's words as they relate to the controversies of our day. And there will always be controversies in every day. They won't always be the same. This is what Luther said. It moves me deeply. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, Except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So it will be helpful, I believe, in the last part of this message to describe for you some positions that we take in present controversies, ten of them. Some of these controversies are relatively new. Some of them are always around. And I'm simply going to orient Bethlehem College and Seminary in the controversies. One of the reasons I'm doing this is the very fact that I'm doing it tells you something about the school. 
because many schools avoid, like the plague, what I am about to do. Reason? You lose friends. And we need money. All of us need money. This is not a pointing a finger at anybody. We will not exist without money. Faculty can't be paid. Buildings can't be warmed. Libraries can't be built without money. We all need money. And the temptation is to play to our constituencies with a vengeance. We may be guilty of it someday. I'm just doing what I'm doing now. First, to let you know, this is the sort of thing while I live, we will do. Here we stand. The second reason I'm doing it is because a lot of you want to know, what do you think about such and such? If our young people go there, what will they hear? I may not touch your favorite one, but I am going to touch on ten in the last few minutes. Number one, what I'm going to do is name, I'll try to put a name on the controversy, state our position, unpack it for one minute or so. Number one, historical criticism. Put other more fancy names on it. A view of the Bible that um, chooses the parts that seem to be accurate and rejects the others. The Bible is inspired and inerrant so that what it teaches is true and stands in judgment on all traditions, all science, all culture, all human opinion. It is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. It is worthy of a lifetime of assiduous reflection, heartfelt meditation, and joyful obedience. I really do believe that the flavor the ethos, the trajectory of an institution is very largely governed by the heartfelt view of the Bible, not just the paper view, the heartfelt view. Because when you go into seminars and conferences and classes where they claim to be a biblical institution and the Bible never shows up, you start to think, hmm. And then if you ask them about that, the most common answer that I get back is, we assume that. That is so true for us, we don't need to mention it. To which I respond, God does not like to be taken for granted. He means to be explicitly glorified everywhere, all the time, according to his word. Number two, Roman Catholicism. Justification involves the imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith alone and is not defined by the impartation of Christ's righteousness. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is at the heart of the biblical gospel. It includes imputation of Christ's righteousness, not the impartation of the righteousness of Christ and it comes to us by faith alone, in Christ alone. Number three, relativism and pluralism. Jesus is the only way to God. In order to be saved from eternal damnation, 
all peoples, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, animist, secularist, must know and believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who died for them and rose again. World missions is a priority for all people who love people, know Christ, and see the unreached world that's out there. Number four, universalism and annihilationism. Hell is real and terrible. This is another little litmus paper that I think tips you off as to the faithfulness of an institution. What do they say and feel about hell? Hell, as Jesus taught more than anyone else, is real. It is a conscious, eternal experience of torment. Pictured in part as weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, unquenchable fire, eternal punishment, divine vengeance, and a lake of fire. People should be warned with tears and urgency. Number five, abortion. The unfettered abortion license is abominable. Abortion is morally monstrous. Unborn human life should be protected for the same reasons that all human life should be protected. Number six, feminism and egalitarianism. The complementary differences of manhood and womanhood are beautiful, practical, and important. We believe that God's merciful purpose for our great good is that humble, Christ-like, servant-hearted men bear the burden of leadership as elders and pastors in the church and that such men function as the caring, providing, protecting leaders of their homes. And that women come alongside these men with their manifold gifts and help them carry through the mission of the church and the home. Seven, divorce and homosexuality. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman as husband and wife. No kind of relationship between two men or two women is marriage. Whatever two men do or say to each other, whatever two women do or say to each other, it is not now, never has been, never will be marriage. In God's eyes, if I had my way, I would completely strike the term gay marriage out of the vocabulary of all Christians. It is not anything. It does not exist. The very use of the term is a compromise with what cannot be. Marriage is the lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife on the analogy of Christ and the church. Number eight, racism and ethnocentrism. 
delighting in and desiring racial and ethnic diversity and harmony is crucial. Indifference to active love across ethnic lines is an assault on the purpose of God in the cross of his son. Because he died to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Happy, unified, ethnic diversity in Christ is our destiny in the age to come. And should be loved and longed for and sought after now. Number nine. Consumerism and materialism. Desiring riches is deadly and wartime simplicity is good. Desiring to be rich is suicidal, the Bible says. And commending that desire as part of the Christian life is therefore worse than murderous. Because not just this life, but the next is at stake. Followers of Jesus should feel a magnetic pull on their lives toward wartime simplicity so that they may be lavish in their giving to alleviate as much suffering as we can, especially eternal suffering. And tenth and finally, Arminianism and open theism. God is sovereign over all things, including natural calamity and human sin. Let me quote from the Bethlehem elder affirmation of faith. God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did, by most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself. Yet, in such a way that he never sins, nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. For those who have been around Bethlehem a while, Bethlehem Baptist Church, you know, I pray that you know, that the overwhelming spirit of our worship and our ministry and our missions is aggressively proactive and positive. I think the person that came to our services for the last 10 years or 20 would not say this church is always defined 
by what they're opposed to. I do not think anyone would say that. We do not define ourselves by what we respond to. But neither do we shrink back out of fear that others will define us that way. They will. They will listen to this message and they will call us sexists for sure. Or worse. So you don't fail to say what needs to be said for fear that the blogosphere will be ablaze with criticism. You don't. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his own house? There is no escaping criticism if you're faithful to the word of God. You don't seek it. We don't love it. We want to live peaceably with all men in as much as it lies within our power, but not at the expense of telling the truth that is precious and valuable, even if others regard it as wrong. The spirit of the church and the spirit of the school is the spirit of Christian hedonism. That is, in Christ Jesus, crucified and risen, God is 100%, take a deep breath, 100% for us, sinners though we be, because of Christ. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And in bringing us to God, he brings us to the greatest treasure in the universe, which means he loves us. He's exalted as our greatest treasure. We are satisfied by beholding the greatest beauty in the world. That's the essence of Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and not in his gifts and not in avoiding people's displeasure. To know him, enjoy him, and show him in every way that we can from his word and from his world is our passion. Because we know that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we rest in Christ as our supreme treasure, especially in times of suffering, and they will come more than they are now. When we rest in Christ as our treasure, our supreme treasure, above all things, even through times of suffering, he is shown to be supremely true and valuable to those who are watching our lives. May God prosper this vision for the joy of all peoples and for the glory of his son. Amen. Father in heaven, with all our hearts, we feel inadequate and trembling for fear of pride or the indifference to poverty or the fear of man. And we ask that in your great mercy, you would take us out the moment we become unuseful for the glory of your son that you would establish this school on such foundations as these.
and refine them if any is amiss and make this school for generations to come a blessing to thousands and an honor to your son in whose name we pray. Amen.